Hey, Deserving Listeners, I have an announcement to make about the premium feed. So a quick note, if you're listening to this in the future, then this might not apply to you. It probably won't. I'm recording this on July 15th, 2020. So if you're listening to this a couple months later or a year later, this probably doesn't apply to you at all, and you don't need to listen to this couple minutes of the feed. But if you're listening to it this week, which is mid-July 2020, then look at your phone right now and make sure that it – so there are three different feeds. There's the – and all have a different color logo. And that, so the blue logo – and again, this only applies to mid-July 2020. The blue logo is the free logo, and that is for non-patrons. So if you have a blue logo, that doesn't have any of the premium episodes on it, and that's, that's free. And so that's going to stay. The blue, the blue logo feed will remain the same. There's an orange logo feed, which is the old feed, and that's going to be discontinued soon. So if you have an orange logo, that's going to die soon, or it's going to be it's not going to be updated. The new premium feed, which has all the episodes plus the premium episodes that are only for patrons, has a teal logo. Teal meaning, you know, light green, greenish blue. So if you don't have the teal logo feed, make sure that you do. And the way you do that is you go to Patreon, go to our page, look at the posts there. There's a lot of, you know, I've I've been posting a lot of explanations on how to get the teal logo feed, the new feed. This new feed is going to be a lot better for a lot of reasons, which I won't go into. But uh, it's weird that in 2020, we finally have a solution to a lot of the problems we've been dealing with for the past 12 years. Podcast is kind of a forgotten corner of the internet that only has recently been uh, attended to by tech people. So anyway, we finally have a good solution, and, and you do that by using this this process. If you have the orange logo feed, that's going to die soon, and, and you're not going to have access to any future episodes, or maybe the whole thing's going to be taken down. So if you don't have the if you're a patron and you don't have the teal logo, go to Go to Patreon, follow the instructions, and subscribe to that feed. All right. Let's, and again, if you're listening to this in the future, don't worry about it at all. Don't freak out because we might change the logo. You know, if, if you're listening to this in 2021 or 2022, the logo might look completely different by then. We might change the logo. So if, you, if in 2022 you don't see a teal logo, I would suspect that it's in the future and we're looking at holograms or something. Who knows? So this only applies if you're mid-July 2020. All right. Let's get to some emails. Uh, So this this anonymous person wrote in, how exactly is maturity measured? I'll I'll just summarize what the email is saying. uh, She's saying that, that I often will talk about how Someone in their 50s can, can date someone in their 20s because they have a similar maturity level. And how I also talk about how children who are uh, like a 12-year-old may prefer to play with a 7-year-old because a 12-year-old has the maturity level of a 7-year-old. And they go on to say, is there, is there a way to measure maturity in psychology? I was wondering because as a 21-year-old woman, I broke up with my boyfriend, who is a 26-year-old man. We got along well and ended the relationship on good terms. But listening to your podcast makes me wonder if he showed signs of immaturity as he only affiliated himself with people my age. He has a childish sense of humor, which there's nothing wrong with. He graduated from college three years ago, yet all of his friend group were individuals in college. End of email. 
So very quickly, uh, what I'll say is that in the clinical literature, maturity is used in a variety of ways. So um, we have psychological maturity, developmental, legal, meaning like you, you can buy cigarettes because you're quote unquote mature. Independence, maturity, uh, emotional regulation, maturation, biological maturation, religious maturation, you know, a bar, bar mitzvah, this kind of thing. So we, we use it in the clinical literature in a lot of ways. And so to answer your question about how do you measure maturity psychologically, there really isn't a firm way of doing that in the way that I'm referring to it to. You, you can measure it biologically like the – you know, the moment you start having pubic hair or the moment, uh, you know, sexual development starts to happen or hormonal development or whatever. But in terms of the way I'm using it, um, it's, it's, not, it's not a hard science measurement sort of thing. So, uh, so the way that I'm using – so let's talk about uh, the various ways that I use it. And I like these kinds of questions because sometimes I just spout off things and I'm, I'm hoping that people understand what I'm talking about and then later realize that um, people don't necessarily know what I'm talking about. So it's good to have some clarification. So in situations where we would observe that a 12-year-old uh, plays better with younger children, this is something that we observe clinically and in families. Uh, we, we see this in some children. Basically, the way that we would see it is like, well, that 12-year-old, even though he's 12, he seems to act more like a 7-year-old and he seems to get along better with 7-year-olds. When, when he plays with people his own age, things don't seem to go so well. He, he gets insecure. He doesn't really know how to play their jokes. He doesn't, he's not really interested in the same things. But when he plays with 7-year-olds, he has a similar play style. They get along better. They have similar interests. And so we actually will encourage the 12-year-old to play with 7-year-olds instead of other fellow 12-year-olds because everybody needs friends and there's nothing wrong with a 12-year-old playing with a 7-year-old um, aside from you know, exploitation issues, which you know, usually aren't present but could be. So, so in terms of that, we would observe that pretty easily. Um, it's, it's, some of you parents out there might actually have kids like this where you're – or the opposite can be true as well, like where a 12-year-old doesn't like playing with people their own age but likes to play with people older than them. Maybe they had older siblings that they got used to playing with and so they really just like older people. Maybe some of you when you were young, you remember liking to hang out with a different age group than your own age group. And that usually has to do with, again, similar play style, getting along better. You know, 12-year-olds, they're starting – they're in that tween years. They're starting to – get a little attitude -y with society and their parents. They're starting to think about fashion and and romance and, you know, pop music and these, you know, Snapchat and these kinds of things. Seven-year-olds in general, they're not into that kind of thing. And so for some 12-year-olds, they're just like, you know what? I'm not into the tween culture. I'm not into things that t tweens are into. I don't like to talk about the things that tweens do. I like to run around in the yard and throw, you know, a football at each other and draw pictures and and play shoots and ladders and that's more of a 7-year-old thing. And so so that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about maturity in that way. Now, what does that mean exactly? Does it mean that the person is is psychologically immature? You know, it can, but it can also just be a a play style. The other uh, situation I'll talk about maturity is the 50-year-old dating the 20-year-old. And this is, this is a different maturity word. 
uh, and this is much more amorphous and much more of a of a vibe thing. Some some people in their twenties, I guess it's similar to the to the twelve year old wanting to play with the seven year old, but it's it's different because with the twelve year old, you know, seven year olds act differently than twelve year olds on average. There's there's a pretty stark difference between seven, twelve, and seventeen. If you look at the way they talk. The things they're interested in, their emotional regulation, sexuality, all those things are are pretty different. Not always. There's some overlap, but you know, on average, there's there's pretty big differences. When you look at 25 year olds and 55 year olds, there's there's a lot less difference because once you enter into adulthood, you all have jobs potentially. You all have cars. You all can drink alcohol. You all vote. You all read the internet, the same internet. You uh, might like the same TV shows. And so the fact that a a 50-year-old gets along really well with a 25-year-old doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as a 12-year-old getting along with a 7-year-old. Now, of course, there are differences through the ages, kind of. But, you know, you mentioned – you know, getting getting to your specific thing here, you're saying because you he, he's 26, and you're saying he hangs out with mostly college age people. You know, 20, 21 year old. Well, the thing is, as an almost 50 year old myself, I'll say that the difference between 26 and 21 is not very much. <laughs> I mean, there is a difference, right? I mean, I remember when I was 21. Just as a side note, I I've always been a musician and. Uh, of course, I was in a band in the 90s in Seattle, and uh, we needed a new bassist. And so we were uh, auditioning new bassists. And I, I was probably 24 at the time, and we auditioned a bassist who was 29. And he was great. He was an awesome bassist, really nice guy. He he had his own truck that could carry his own amp, his own, and he had a good job. I remember he was a he was like a master um, like construction guy or something. He, I remember master was in the word, and he was well put together, and you know he didn't do any hard drugs or anything. And so, but so we loved him on all these different levels, except he was twenty nine and we were twenty four, and we just thought. We can't be in a band with a 29-year-old. He's ancient. <laughs> so I definitely know that when you're 21 and you let, and you look at a 26-year-old, they look ancient to you. But take it from me, as a 50-year-old looking back at a 26-year-old and a 21-year-old, there isn't that much difference. Now, can there be a big difference? Absolutely. But when, when we take averages, when we zoom out to all the different stages of, of life – there isn't that much difference. So you're probably focusing on, on a detail that um, isn't hugely meaningful. The other thing is, is that, uh, you know, so you're wondering, is my ex-boyfriend, is he immature because he hangs out with college-age people? Well, it might just be that he hasn't met people his own age or he likes the college lifestyle. You know, there is a bit of a difference. When you're 26, on average, you're not going to be partying as much. You're probably going to be trying to buckle down on on a career or something or or grad school or and 
maybe bills are a little bit harder to pay. You're trying to actually have good furniture instead of cinder blocks with plywood on it. And so, you know, there's there's some differences, but I, I don't know. I, when I think back to uh, when I was 26 as opposed to 21, I don't know if there's that much of a difference. And when I observe people in their 20s today, I don't, I don't see a huge difference either. So um, now maybe throughout the, his entire life, he will always like people a little bit younger than him. And I'll say actually me and my wife, um, all of our friends are younger than us. They're, well, Bob is older than me. He's, he's about four or five years older than me. But aside from him, I think that like all of our friends are younger. Does that mean that me and my wife, Stacy, are immature? Well, I, I don't think so. I think a big reason is because uh, we just happened to meet a lot of younger people. Younger people want to go out more. They want to do things more. <laughs> they want to you know, go to parties and go to movies and go on trips to Vegas and you know they younger people generally want to do more things than older people do on average certainly there are older people I mean I'm almost 50 and I like to do things and certainly there are other 50 year olds who like to do things so you know is it immaturity or is it lifestyle or is it vibe or is it random circumstance that you just run into these people is it the fact that you work at a job where there's a different age group um, you know there's a long time when i worked at antioch as a, as a professor there's a span of time but maybe about 10 years where i was one of the youngest professors in the university and so everyone i hung out with at the at the university were were in their 60s and 70s and maybe 80s. And so I had a lot of friends, so to speak, who were in their 70s. But that was because at my university, that's all the people that were there. <laughs> um, now the university has completely flip-flopped because that the baby boomers, they all, uh, for the most part, retired. And now it's all people in their 20s and 30s. And now I'm the old guy all of a sudden. Anyway, And so I hang out with a lot of younger people at the university. So, yeah. So that's what I'll say about that. Let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from patron Phoebe from Australia. She writes, I would love to hear your thoughts on only children. My partner and I plan to have only one child. Whenever I tell people we're going to have only one child, they say, oh, no, you can't have only one child. That child is going to be so lonely. Or the child is going to be so sad. Or they say, only children are brats. So I've stopped telling people that I'm going to have only one child. Are we going to have a sad and lonely child? Is there any evidence or research to support this common viewpoint? End of email. Yeah, there are a lot of claims about only children and birth order in general. You'll hear claims like only children are awkward and lack social skills or only children are self-centered and narcissistic and self-absorbed or... You know, oldest children are responsible and middle children are ignored and invisible and youngest children are babies and immature and the clowns of the family, this kind of thing. Well, when it comes to these kinds of claims, we always want to look at the research and there is a ton of research. In fact, one of the earliest presentations I ever did as a clinician was on birth order. Uh, not only as a professor, but I, but the Boeing, the you know company that makes airplanes in Seattle, they hired me to give these lunchtime talks when I was real young. I was 27 years old, just out of grad school, and they hired me to give these lunchtime talks, and one of them was on birth order. It was a very popular topic, right? 
then there's a lot of there's a lot of notions out there. And if you just you know polled the average person, I'm I'm quite positive you would find most people would believe that birth order does have an effect on your personality. And I would suspect a lot of clinicians do too. Adler, for example, uh, claimed that there were personality differences based on birth order. Well, there is a mountain of research looking at this question from various different angles. And although I could go into the nuances of you know, certain research that shows this and that, I'm just going to give you the broad strokes. In a nutshell, on average, birth order, only children, no effect on personality, and really no effect on anything. And I'll get into maybe some of the effects in a second, but to be clear, Research shows that on average, only children are no different from children who have siblings. And it's same with birth order. Oldest children do not have distinct personalities in contrast to middle children and young, youngest children. And I've gotten into fights with people over this because people are so convinced. They'll be like, well, you know, my oldest sibling, she is very responsible. And I was the middle child, so I was the forgotten one who you know, used pot all the time. And the youngest child, you know, she's always been this baby and she's always irresponsible. So this is what we call confirmation bias. Now, it one, it's possible that your family just randomly fits the stereotype. But that doesn't mean that on average, all families have this effect. The fact that your family might randomly match up with the stereotype doesn't mean that on average, all families do. There's a similar thing when it comes to the five stages of grief. So people will talk about the five stages of grief, which is denial, anger, depression, bargaining, acceptance, I think. And uh, long story short, on average, people do not follow those stages of grief. Now, might one individual or a set of individuals follow those stages of grief? Yeah, randomly. You know, the, a, a clock, a broken clock is correct two times a day, and people can randomly match up with bad scientific claims. So the fact that you know a family where an oldest was this and a middle was invisible, or an only child was self-absorbed, or an only child was lonely and awkward, that doesn't prove that, that, it's, an, that it's a... A causation, meaning that only you know, if you have an only child, then it is a factor in contributing to personality because the data just doesn't show that at all. Now, I will say that there is this effect that we found in the science where people, because they're told they're they're the oldest and they're supposed to be more responsible, then they might actually act, they might act actually act more responsible because they are expected to be and they're being told. We call this like parent-specific or family-specific personality effects. And as soon as that person leaves the family, then they no longer act that way. And they, they, they have their regular personality that they act outside of their family. So in your family, you might conform to those roles where the youngest is the immature one. But that's only because that's that person's role in that family because they're the youngest kid. But as soon as they leave the family and interact with other people, they don't act irresponsible in general. So we don't call that a personality trait. We call it kind of like a context-specific uh, behavior, if you will, because people are sort of expecting you to be that way and they sort of treat you that way and you feel like you're supposed to be that way. So, so there's that. 
other research also shows, you know, regarding the loneliness thing, is that only children have just as many friends as children who have siblings. Um, so only children, oldest children, middle children, youngest children, no effect on personality. The, and it makes sense. Think about all the factors that contribute to personality. There are so many things that contribute. Genetics, attachment, parenting style, trauma, random experiences, socioeconomic status, systemic influences in the family, gender, physical traits, uh, your own personal choices, etc. cetera, uh, medical issues, biology. There's so many different things that develop someone's personality. How could birth order be so dominant that it would just dominate all those other factors and create this signal. Um, now, one would suspect that birth order might create a little bit of a signal, but it doesn't. It just doesn't. We, and we've looked at this for decades. It's pretty easy to study. All you got to do is measure someone's personality, uh, either brief measures or very in-depth measures, and then ask them, well, what birth order are you? Are you an oldest child? Are you youngest child? Are you an only child? And then you compare the results, and lo and behold, no difference. If there is a difference, there might be a slight benefit to being an only child. But really, in my opinion, based on the information, I think it's more of an issue of fewer children. So in a family with you know, say one, two, three children, as opposed to a family that has 12 children, it stands to reason that fewer children are going to get more parental attention. There's going to be less stress in the family. There's going to be more financial security in the family. Uh, the parents are going to be able to spend more time with each child. And thus, when you have fewer children in a family, then the children seem to adjust a little bit better. But, you know, even that those data are uh, not very strong and the in the, you know, the effect size isn't that high. So, the the thing I want you people to walk away with is that birth order only children not a factor in personality. And so the claims that you're hearing from people that they're saying, "Oh no, you can't only have one child. That child's going to be so lonely." Not true. Or, oh, no, that child's going to be so sad. Not true. Or, oh, no, only children are going to be brats and, you know, they're self-absorbed. Not true. These are all just weird, you know, notions that get passed around through culture. And I think one of the factors is that for some reason, which it's, it's always boggled me, people just want other people to have children. There, there's this weird cultural notion that I don't think is innate in people. I think it's a cultural notion maybe a more traditional cultural notion where people just want people to have kids. They're just like, well, you're going to have kids, right? And you're not going to just have one. You're going to have, you're going to have many kids. And you, you'll, you'll see people like, oh, congratulations. You, you, you know, you're having another child. And instead of uh, thinking about it, it's just like, well, shouldn't that just be up to the individual? And, you know, having more kids isn't necessarily like a great thing. Having kids is great, but also not having kids is great. Having five kids is great. Also having one kid is great. But we seem to edge towards this preference of you want to have more kids. I also think that families want to support people having kids so they will overshoot and will say, well, you got to have more, you know, because they, 
I don't know. I, it's just a weird cultural thing that gets passed around, and I think it in, it gets inf, uh, infused in our notions of personality. And when we actually look at it empirically, we find that those notions are silly. Now, having said all that, can an only child be lonely? Absolutely. Some of you only children out there might be like, "Yeah, I was. I felt very lonely as a child." Yeah, but can a child with five siblings be lonely? Absolutely. <laughs> it's not like having siblings means you're not lonely. <laughs> Take it from me. I had three siblings. You know, having siblings is is complicated. You know, so it, it's 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 not necessarily true that being an only child is is vastly different, really. Than you know, most of us by the time we get to a certain age, we mainly hang out with friends. We mainly hang out with peers. We don't necessarily hang out with our siblings and play with our siblings. Some siblings do. Now, the other thing I'll say is there's a grass is greener thing. You will find that people that come from large families will wish they were only children and only children will wish that they had siblings because when you're an only child and you see your friends with their siblings, you just you feel jealous. You're like, ah, oh, I wish I had you know siblings because it looks so fun and cool. But then you ask the people with siblings and they're like, me and my brother fought with each other for like our entire childhood and I wished my brother disappeared many, many times. <laughs> now, that's not always the case. Having said all that, can birth order have an effect? Absolutely. Uh, but like I said, there's so many other factors involved that are, so you have to look at it on a case-by-case basis. Like just take me, for example, and I give this lecture at my university in a much more lengthy way. But in a, in a nutshell, for me, I'm an only, I'm a, I'm a middle child, Okay, so statistically, you know, I have a, there's a I have, I have a brother and then a sister and then there's me and then my younger brother. So I'm third out of four. So I'm a, I'm a middle child. So if we just went off that those data, we'd be like, okay, middle child, that's my designation. But let's look more closely. So my older brother and sister were close in age; they're like a couple years apart, and then I came along six years later. And so for the first number of years of my life, you know, zero through seven, I was basically the youngest child in my family because my my younger brother didn't come along until six or seven years later. So for a long time, particularly during my de- the development of my personality, I was a youngest child. Then my younger brother comes along and all of a sudden, oh, no, I'm not a youngest child anymore. Now I'm, now I'm a middle child. And then... My older brother and sister moved out of the house when they were 18, go to college, that kind of thing. Now I'm an oldest child. Now I'm, I'm kind of like in charge of taking care of my younger brother. And so which one am I? Am I, an, am I a youngest? Am I a middle? Or I, am I an older? Well, in my mind, I'm all three. And that doesn't even take into account gender, the fact that I was the middle son and my sister was the only daughter in the family and the age differences and our ethnicity and the way my, my parents treated us, the, the sort of status my parents went through as at each stage of our lives. You know, when, when my older brother and sister were young, my parents were just starting out. They were like 20 years old and were struggling financially and didn't know, you know, where they were going to live and th- this kind of thing. I mean, they weren't homeless, but you know, there's a lot of uncertainty when you're 20 and starting out with in your career. 
When I was born, my parents were definitely more established. My dad was actually a career man at, at Boeing, the airplane company. But then by the time my little brother came along, my parents were very established and very financially secure and um, had, you know, were living in a house that they bought. And, and, there, and, and my younger brother was parented essentially by all of us older siblings because we were so much older, and particularly my older siblings. They're, they're like 14 years older than my younger brother. And so they, so my, my younger brother had four parents, four and a half parents, including me. So, you know, there, so did that affect things? Sure. I mean, when I, when I look at it, I, I have an hypothesis and many hypotheses about all of our personalities in relation to birth order. But you have to look more closely. You can't just look at, well, I'm a middle child, therefore I'm an invisible child. So, you know, th- so when you think about birth order, do not think about the, the common notions in society because science has disproved those notions over and over and over again. All right, let's take a break. And when we get back, let's continue reading some emails. All right, we're back from the break. This next email is from Anonymous Roommates. So this is an email from two people who are roommates. We are college roommates who went to the same private Christian high school. We were both required to take a marriage and family class that taught us the exact thing that Ash talked about in his seminar, the seminar about boxes in men's brains and how different men and women are. So just chiming in here, if you're not aware, uh, there's a TV show called 90 Day Fiancé Before the 90 Days, and it's a reality TV show that I've been doing reaction videos to on YouTube. And in one of the episodes, there's a guy named Ash, and he gives this seminar on how to you know manage romantic relationships or something. And he gives this talk about how men and women are inherently different and how uh, men think in boxes and women think in waves. And in this video, he is actually parroting things that were being said by another person on YouTube or in a seminar. It's a long story. But the idea is, is that this guy on this on this show was saying some ridiculous things uh, about gender that were just not supported by science. And as I was watching the video and reacting to it, um, I literally fell out of my seat as I was watching the video. It was, the things he was saying were so appalling to me that um, and they were, were getting worse and worse and worse, and I was reacting, and I was freaking out, and then I fell out of my seat while I was watching this uh, this reality TV show because it was just so silly. But So these anonymous roommates are saying that they went to a private Christian high school, and they took a marriage and family class, and in the class, the teacher actually taught them these ideas that – Men and women are, you know, massively different, and that men think in boxes, and women think in in waves, and and all these ridiculous notions. Um, and so, just going on with your email here. Looking back, we are pretty horrified that the topic was taught that way, especially when we were so young. Now I am a psychology major, and my roommate is pre med, so we've thankfully learned how wrong that was. We both have complicated feelings about our high school because we both still are Christians and learned some helpful things while we were at that high school. But we were also taught many outdated, ultra-conservative, and outright wrong beliefs 
that were supposed to that were imposed on us from a young age. We were wondering if you had any advice about balancing the true parts of our faith and not paying attention to the other stuff. And if you had any advice about being more progressive in a conservative community. We often feel caught in the middle between what we believe faith-wise and what the community adds on and expects other Christians to believe. End of email. This is a great question. It's almost never talked about, even though most Americans identify as Christian. Something like two-thirds of Americans identify as Christian, and yet somehow we just never talk about this. So it's just a strange thing. Uh, I suspect I know why we don't talk about it, because it's a hot-button topic for people, but we shouldn't be afraid of, of things. That's silly. So as a caveat before answering this question, I'm answering not as a therapist. I'm, I'm answering it as a citizen, as a, as a fellow human being on this planet. As a therapist, I would answer the question just like, well, do what you want to do. You know, that's, it's your life to live and, and it's your path and go on your journey. You know, how do you def- I would ask questions I would elicit from these people like, well, what do you want to do? I would Socratically lead them to where they want to go, where, wherever that was with regards to this. So everything I'm about to say is actually my own opinion, and it's going to have my own flair in there. And it's it, I would never say these sorts of things to a client if they were to ask me a question like this. So there's also, as another caveat, there are a lot of different ways to see this that uh, I'm not going to be able to go into. There, this this question actually is mulled over by philosophers for hundreds of years. So the, it's it's not some simple thing that one can just have a quick answer to. And I want to respect the rich history of debate and philosophy regarding this very question. The other thing I'll say is um, everything I'm about to say is just my own humble little way of seeing it. And if it differs from the way you see it, then it, we just differ in that way. And so don't take offense if we see things differently. Um, This is just my, I'm not saying the way I'm seeing it is the way everyone is supposed to see it. I I hope that is abundantly clear. So if you don't like people with different opinions, I recommend you turn this off and move on with your life. So I grew up Christian. I grew up, I might call it ultra Christian. Now I will say that I grew up in the 70s and 80s when Christianity looked differently. It was pre-evangelical Christian and pre-politicized Christian. It was uh, during a time when there was a lot of hippies, you know, involved in Christianity, especially in the on the West Coast, and so I that's my cultural pocket that I grew up in. I have a lot of fond memories. My entire family, all, all six of us, would go to church every Sunday. I would do Sunday school and youth group and young life, and you know, there's just a lot of a lot of fun times for me growing up. And I, I have a lot of memories growing up, and not only just in the church, but also with my family regarding church. So, and belief and faith and all these kinds of things. So, so what I'll say, and and uh, someday I'll do a whole episode about my current religious and spiritual beliefs. Uh, They've diverged quite far from my childhood, so I'll just say that. But so I don't know if I would identify as Christian today. In fact, I probably wouldn't. But the point is, is that I don't know if I want to go into that all those details because it's kind of personal. But anyway, the point is, is that I I, I have a you know anonymous roommates. Um, I although I didn't go to a Christian 
uh, private school, I definitely, you know, you know, know basically what you're talking about. Although, like I said, I grew up during a different time when Christianity was really quite something different in the United States. So um, the thing I'll say, the first thing that popped into my head was just because a Christian says something does not make it gospel. Just because someone who calls themselves a Christian teaches you a class on something does not mean what they're saying is good. <laughs> I mean, you, you can all imagine that, you know, a Christian goes on a killing spree. Well, we don't look at that person and say like, oh, well, wait, does that, is that what Christianity means now? We're all supposed to go on a killing spree? Or even to expand that, if you say like, well, the Christians in my community say this thing, does that mean that's what Christianity is? So now what I'll say is, is that in current times, uh, these kinds of questions are hard to answer for a lot of people because Christianity for a lot of people has become completely infused with politics. When I was growing up, I don't remember anyone talking about who to vote for or current affairs or uh, gay people. I don't remember any talk about that when I was young. Uh, maybe I didn't – I don't remember it. But the only thing I remember being talked about was love, charity, forgiveness, not giving into your anger, uh, you know, giving up to other people, giving other people the benefit of the doubt, dedication to your family, being good to people. Uh, that's what I remember. I don't – or turning the other cheek, you know, nonviolence. That's what I remember growing up. I don't remember anything about – I mean, the presidents of the time would have been Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. I don't remember anything about anyone talking. I, I feel like in polite society, you didn't talk about politics when I was a kid. Of course, today, it's like it's a lot different. But so, so I'll just say that. Um, so let's say, as an example, that a Christian says that gay people are wrong – and that they're immoral and that they're going to hell, or that Trump is the best president of all time. You know, that doesn't mean, you know, just because a Christian says those things does not mean that all Christians need to believe that, right? We all understand that. And just because a Christian uh, gives a class proposing ideas of gender that are scientifically false does not mean that you have to denounce science and adopt a pseudoscientific notion of gender just because a Christian told you that. When I was growing up in, in church, I remember a very important notion being taught to us, which is that although there is a pure um, religion, there's a, there's a pure Jesus, there's a pure God you know, that is pure, humans are on the planet trying to interpret it. And we're interpreting it through the word of God and the Bible and other kinds of things. And humans are fallible. And so humans are going to mess it up. And so just because a, a human Christian says something does not mean it's the word of God. No one – I remember learning this when I was a kid, that no one knows the word of God. You only know – you only can try to approximate what God is trying to tell you. And if all of us had a direct – or if any one of us had a direct line to God – then we wouldn't need faith. It would just be an alien that lived in the sky that told us what to do. It would just be a, a real thing. The whole idea of Christianity and, and other religions is that 
you have to go on faith. You have to believe. And there's no proof that this thing is real. You have, you have to believe it's real. And that's, that's what defines a faith. And when uh, scholars who would come to our church and talk, they would talk about this idea of faith and that it's not something that, that you ever really know. And thus, you can't know if Trump is the best president or not because that's a silly notion to uh, when, it, when you look at it in contrast to the bigger picture and faith and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, I remember when I was a kid – uh, there were brief moments that I remember where a Christian was saying something that was r- ridiculous, and they were, it was so noticeable to me that I remember it to this day. So, I, you know, I'd go to church summer camps and everything, and I, and I was at a camp. I was probably like 11 years old, and I, I was in. We were in this one class, and this one Christian was teaching us this notion that John Denver was evil. Now, for you young people, you might not even know who John Denver is, but John Denver was the sweetest. He was like the Tom Hanks of the 70s, (laughs) except he sang songs. Like, no one disliked John Denver. He was just like all-American, wonderful guy. Uh, He he was a frequent uh, guest star on The Muppet Show, if that makes any sense, or if that tells you what kind of guy he was or the way the Americans saw him. And... Well, so this teacher was telling me my hero, John Denver, was evil. And I was like, oh, no, John Denver. And, and, what, and I, you know, why is John Denver evil? Well, because in his song, Sunshine on My Shoulders, the lyrics go, sunshine on my shoulders, make me happy. Sunshine in my eyes can make me cry. Sunshine on the water looks so lovely. Sunshine almost always makes me high. Sunshine almost always makes me high. That must mean he's talking about marijuana, which is the devil's plant, which means he is evil. (laughs) And I remember at the age of 11 thinking, that's dumb. Like, you're dumb. That's stupid. John Denver. (laughs) John Denver talking about sunshine on his shoulder makes him high makes John Denver evil you're dumb so i so i i must not have heard those kinds of things fast forward a couple more years and i'm with a friend and we're actually in the church um the main auditorium and there there's not a lot of people around and me and my friend were playing imagine by john lennon on the piano you know where uh, she was actually playing it and we were both singing along and and uh, this woman walked in, and she was like a new Christian. She she was uh, – because the church I grew – I grew up in the same town my entire life. And so we went to the same church, and, and we – my family actually started going to this church when it was just like a couple dozen people, and it grew. But anyway, so so me and my family felt like we were – kind of like the founders of this church anyway. By the way, I come from a whole line of, of founding people to churches. I, now that I think about it, uh, my Japanese great-grandfather founded a church in Spokane, Washington. My, I think, great-great-great-grandparents in Kansas formed a church there that's still, still there, Methodist church. And then I have like distant relatives who are Quakers who I mean, not distant, but that go way back. Quakers who and, and who came over from England and uh, were on the west coast or east coast, like uh, North Carolina area, uh, Westminster, I believe, and um, 
and there's a Bible that was like or Welsh Welsh Quakers or something. And I'm so proud of this lineage because they actually, during slavery, would actually help uh, slaves to become free in the South because they were Quakers in the South that did not believe in slavery and were completely opposed to the institution. And and even though they were white people in the South, they – anyway, so, so anyway uh, – I got off track. <laughs> but anyway, okay. So I, in this church that I grew up in, I felt pretty much like it was my church. And this new woman was a was a new soccer mom woman. And she walks in while we're playing Imagine on the piano. And she says, you can't play that here. You shouldn't play that song in here. And we're like, uh, what? <laughs> and she says, you know, there's that line, like, imagine no heaven above us, no hell below. Like, this is an anti-Christian song. This is a terrible song to play in a church. I can't believe you're playing. And we just looked at her like, you're dumb. You're a new person in this church, and you're trying to define for me what the, I've been here since the beginning, lady. So uh, get out, number one. Number two, this is a beautiful song. It's a beautiful song about nonviolence and peace and loving your neighbor. And if you can't see the Christian values in this song, then go to hell. <laughs> I mean, not literally, but so, you know, we can look throughout history and see multiple instances of Christians saying good things and bad things. You know, giving to charity is a big Christian value. That's a good thing. Uh, you know, we throughout history there have been many Christians who would say that white people are better than brown people. You know, we're talking about whole wars and violence and invasions and um, massacres based on this notion that white people are more human and are more closer to God than than non-white people. Well, this is a bad notion, but this was a notion said by Christians. It was said by popes and you know, higher ups in the in the church, does that mean that uh, we should now believe these notions that white supremacy is a thing? No. So what's the no, what's the possibility that in 2020, somehow Christianity has progressed to a point where every single person who is speaking as a Christian is saying something? that is in line with the values of Christianity and will be seen as such in 50, 100 years, 500 years from now. The chance is extremely low. So like any other point in history, there are people saying stupid crap that happen to be Christian <laughs> and believe that that's a Christian value when, you know, there, there are certain uh, through lines through Christianity that we can say are, are stable, like Forgiveness, like charity, like giving to the poor, like social justice, like standing up for the downtrodden. This is something that Jesus literally did, or you know, at least the written word of him did. And so these these things have you know been a through line. Uh, the notion that Donald Trump is the best president ever, we could say, is a a more recent notion that some Christians believe. So will that stand the time when we compare it to forgiveness and love? and charity and turning the other cheek? Will, will we see uh, notions of today of anti-gay people or, you know, keeping a statue of uh, Robert E. Lee up as a Christian value? Are, are we, are we going to see those sustain? Are we going to see notions of gender difference uh, sustain itself through the next hundred years? I doubt it. 
but the Christianity of 100 years ago will probably retain a very strong through line of love, charity, forgiveness, nonviolence, social justice. You know, that's so, you know, the thing that I'll say is that um, uh, I'm in Seattle, which is one of the most liberal, progressive, non-conservative places on the planet. And so, and and all the Christians that I know are Democrats. I, I don't, I hardly know a single Republican. <laughs> and of the Republicans that I think are Republicans, they're, they're like questioning Republicans in Seattle. There's something like 10% of people in Seattle are Republicans or something. It's an extremely low number of people. And so, so the Christian, the Christianity that I know, I mean, I, a lot of the gay people I know are Christians. A lot of the gay people I know go to church every Sunday. Well, and the church they go to will have like a lesbian minister or something. So, you know, the the Christian cultural pocket that I live in in Seattle is, you know, perhaps different than the pocket that you live in. So, you know, I'm going to speak from from that notion. You know, the the churches in Seattle march in gay pride. Now, in your town, you probably have pro-gay churches as well. So I'm not saying that Seattle is the only place that has that, but I'm just saying that take everything I'm saying with my cultural pocket in mind. So so I hope that that doesn't offend anyone. You know, you're, people are free to have their beliefs, but I think that there are, I think that there are good beliefs and bad beliefs, not in terms of like religious beliefs, but like beliefs in not harming other people, I think are good beliefs in non-superiority of a particular race are good. Beliefs in listening to other people and trying to help other people are good. And opposing beliefs, I think, are bad. And I think most people would believe that. And so I'm not saying that all things are relative. I'm not saying that you can believe whatever you want to believe. I'm saying that within any religion, you're going to have once we evaluate the values and the notions, some are going to be supported by science, some are not. Some are going to stand the test of time, and some are not. Some are going to uh, up, be upheld by a discourse of uh, intelligent philosophers, and some will not. Um, so, so you just have to know that. And so the fact that you, you know, now anonymous roommates, you you ask me questions, you know, you're just like, well, do you have any advice? Because it sounds like you grow up, you know, you're in a conservative community and and you have uh, people who are saying it, you're being a bad Christian if you believe in X, Y, and Z. And geez, I, I don't know what to do. As I said, I've always grown up in a progressive society. So I have no idea what it would be like if I lived in a different town. Now, I'm not saying I'm afraid of Republicans or that I don't like them. I, I just find that um, when politics come up, it, you know, you, you tend not to fight with your fellow human being when you tend to agree on things. And so, um, so I don't know what advice to give you. Um, should you just hunker down and survive and not say anything? Should you speak up? Should you move to another town? Should you, should you try to have difficult conversations with people and try to influence them slowly but surely? I don't know, man. I don't know what to do. I, 
it, today's world po- politically is so weird. It's such a weird world we live in. We we basically have indoctrinated uh, almost all of us into separate cults. We're all in these we're all brainwashed by our own clicking habits on Facebook and Instagram and to have a conversation with people from different from a different cult you're having a conversation about a different planet you're just not even speaking about the same things you're you're speaking about the same facts in completely different ways i don't know what to do i don't know what we're supposed to do individually what i wish the government would do is we had a strong leader a set of leaders who actually educated all of us how we're all being brainwashed and instead of participating in the brainwash. I wish we had a president or you know a congress that was charismatic or something where they could speak out to us and say, look, the things that you believe are shaped by the clicking habits you have on the internet, which is shaped by marketers, which has no regard for you or our country. Marketers are just trying to make money. So you are being brainwashed. And the beliefs, some of the beliefs you have are probably wrong. And let's talk about the common ones. Republicans, if you believe in this and this and this, it's probably wrong. Democrats, if you believe in this and this and this, it's probably wrong. Let's talk about it. Let's, let's recognize our similarities. Let's work together. Let's look at the facts. Let's try to rationalize our way through this instead of just yelling at each other. You know, I don't know if in my lifetime I've, I'm ever going to see a politician do that effectively. I feel like Obama kind of tried to do that at times. There were times when he would really try to say, like, look, okay, everyone slow down. Take it easy. Like, when we get all up in our emotions, then bad things happen. Let's let's take it slower. I feel like I remember the sometimes when, when he would do that. But it certainly didn't work, right? I mean, it's not like during his administration somehow our country became more rational or something. Uh, so, you know, I don't know, I don't know what to do. Um, but getting to your question of, you know, how are you supposed to, uh, sift through these notions of being taught terrible things while you were in Christian private school and now you're becoming, and you're work, you know, you're studying psychology and pre-med and you're seeing these clashes. Well, you're just, you know, you're facing just a classic dilemma or a classic, um, growth, uh, process that, most Christians in their 20s have. You know, when you're young, you just sort of absorb what's going on around you. And then when you go to college, you start learning, like, wait, there's there's other ways of looking at this. And so uh, you're on your own journey. And if you're anything like me, you'll be on a journey for the rest of your life and you don't and you won't know where you're headed and you'll, you, you only know where you've been and where, where you've come from, but you won't know where you're headed. And... That's up to each of us. And, and what I would, would employ everyone to do, if you're an atheist, if you're Muslim, if you're, you believe in crystals or astrology or Christianity or you're Jewish or you're Sikh or you're whatever, whatever you are or you're agnostic, I, I would love it. And some of you do this. I know you do. I would love it if you focused on the humanistic aspects of your religion. All religions, including athe- atheistic um, humanism, has a notion of 
of giving to other people, non-harm, listening, love, working together, charity, support, um, social justice, helping those who need help. In my take on all of these traditions, that is the central good feature, the, the common factor, if you will, that binds us together as humans in a society and makes things work well. So if you're a Christian and you're being told things that are in line with social justice and love, then I support that. <laughs> if you're a Muslim and you get no, you hear notions of love and social justice, I support that. If you're an atheist and you're, you know, an, you're a humanist and you're hearing notions of love and social justice, I support that. That's just me. You know, I'm just one human out of seven and a half billion people on the planet. But, but I like that. And I employ people to, th- to think critically about those notions. So, so if you're in a class as a teenager and, and you're being taught this notion that women and men are inherently different and born different, is that in line with social justice and love? No, not in my book. It's just a it's just a pseudoscientific notion being taught by an idiot that doesn't understand research and didn't buy and googled one thing on the internet and saw a video uh, on YouTube that was apparently made to be a joke and then many people took it seriously and then it was just parroted to you as a child in a class and is that Christian? I don't know. Maybe according to some Christians, but it doesn't have to be, right? Uh, and, and we're, I think, free to define that, especially as a group of people, right? As a as a culture. Anyway, wow, did I ramble and did I trigger so many people? <laughs> Let me know what you think. Uh, I'm curious. I genuinely am. Uh, be nice to each other and and me. Uh, I, I have thin skin. I, I think most podcasters have, in my experience, have thin skin. <laughs> I feel like Umberto has thick skin. I don't know how he does it, but he, he just doesn't seem to care at all. I don't know how he does that. But but anyway, um, are you a Christian? What were you taught? How about this? Comment below or email in, what was the dumbest thing you were taught? according to religion. And what was the best thing you were taught? How about that? The dumbest thing you were taught that you don't believe anymore and the best thing you were taught. Share that. Let's, let's, I'm curious. What, what were, were you taught that John Denver was evil? Or if you're younger, was it, you know, Marilyn Manson was evil <laughs> or something? The Beautiful People was a song of the devil or something? What were you taught that was dumb and what were you taught that was beautiful? And everyone out there, please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. 